turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. You've heard AM, you've heard FM. Now, tune into DM Radio, the world's longest running show about data. Each week, host Eric Cavanaugh interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management. Want to be on a show? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. Now, here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back once again to the longest running show in the world about data. It's called DM Radio. Yours truly here, Eric Cavanaugh, and uh, I'm so excited to kick the new year off with one of the hottest topics in data. It's really driving the information economy, quite frankly, and that is insights, right? Insights are the new nuggets is my theme today, the new gold, why insights are nuggets. I did a webinar late last year talking a lot about <clears throat> different ways to get insights. There are lots of different applications you can use these days to get analytics. There's inline analytics <clears throat> or embedded as they call it, quite frankly. Um, lots of different ways you can get to the nut, if you will. But I did some research and a good friend of mine, Mark Madsen, years ago had uh, done a presentation where he talked about the gold rush and how the narrative around the gold rush is actually quite inaccurate. The narrative, as we understand it, is that a bunch of people went out there with their little pans and they went out to the rivers and got a bunch of gold and struck it rich. And that's not really what happened. Some of them did, uh, the panhandlers, basically. Some of them did get nuggets and make some money, but really the big money didn't come until the industrial machines came in with a lot of investment and money and workers and dynamite and machinery to just sift through all this stuff. That's when a lot of the real gold came out was from big business. But what I find so fascinating is that to this day, gold and nuggets and those kinds of expressions are still just baked into our lexicon, into our language, how we talk about this stuff. Think about comp- like when people say, is everything panning out for you? What does panning out mean? Like the pan that they're holding in the, in the river to get the gold nuggets. That's what it means. So we even refer to nuggets. Oh, we get some good nuggets. That's referring to gold. So insights clearly are the nuggets. They are what are allowing us to change business processes, come up with new products, send the right messages to the right customers, to the right prospects, et cetera. All that is driven by insights, and that's the gold of today. So today we're going to talk to Ryan Keene. He is a very interesting guy right here in Pittsburgh with WGSN, VP in Data Science of, and, and Analytics over there. We'll talk to our buddy Hyun Park of, Amal- of Amalgam Insights. He's the founder and principal over there. And uh, Eve Mulker is our good buddy from Belgium. He's uh, of 7W Data. So I'll start it off with you, Ryan. First of all, thanks for doing the show. And uh, second of all, tell us a bit about yourself, WGSN, what you folks do and how you do it. Yeah, so uh, I'm the VP of Data Science Analytics here at WGSN. Uh, WGSN leads consumer trend forecasts across fashion, beauty, interiors, food and drink, consumer tech, and and, uh, consumer insight. Uh, My team is to bring the quantitative side or data that works with our subject matter experts to help project those trends into the future uh, for our clients. And so we publish a number of reports and we also do a bunch of advisory work as well uh, to support that business. Yeah. And this is so cool. I was mentioning before the show that about 10 or 12 or maybe 13 years ago, I made a prediction that before too long, you'll be able to just go rent or buy the analytics themselves instead of having to stand up servers, load your data warehouse technology, load your BI applications, all that stuff, which lots of companies do, there's a lot of effort that goes into that, especially now that we're in the data science era. Well, data science is hard. I mean, I I often refer to it as the assiduous management of information assets for corporate benefit, and that's really what it is. But data science, you have to be bulletproof. Your methodologies have to be strict and stern and clear. And you have to be very careful about that stuff. And not too many companies, I think, are as careful as they should be with their data. But the point is, you can just rent the stuff today. Now, it took longer than I thought. 
But it sounds to me like, Ryan, you folks are doing exactly what I was predicting 12, 13 years ago, and you're doing it primarily for the fashion industry, and you you capture data from all over the place, right? I think you've got your 5S comments, or tell us about that. Yeah, we, we like to call it to, as the 5Ss. So basically, they stand for shows, social, shelf, search, and sentiment. So we bring those disparate data sources together to tell a complete story, because the answer doesn't lie in any individual data source. It's a matter of bringing the data sources together to tell that story holistically. So show data, so as we talk about fashion, that's the catwalks that happen in Milan, Paris, New York for multiple seasons, social, right? You know, the Instagram, um, TikTok, et cetera. Shelf data, right? That's what's actually being sold in the market. How do we know what's selling, what's not selling, what's getting marked down at the end of the season? Search, right? Consumers go online to search a lot about products, what to buy, something about those products. We have over five years of data there that we look at as well. And then sentiment, right? We put out a survey to just ask consumers, what are they purchasing? Um, what do they think about particular brands and retailers, et cetera? So we bring all that together um, to basically go through and try to find those signals of emerging trends or try to map out where trends are in their life cycle as they progress over time. And so we bring that together to uh, go into a lot of our reports, but also we, we work with individual clients as well to, to help them specifically with their questions. You, know, you brought up the perfect word right there to help articulate to the audience what we're talking about here, signal. Right. Anytime you're doing analysis, you're trying to find the signal versus the noise. And since we're on a radio show here, I'll just point out noise is the static in between the stations. So for those of you who can still change, you know, by numbers to scroll around and see where the radio stations are in this particular area, that's static. That's just noise. That's not helping you. I mean, maybe white noise can help you go to sleep at night if if you uh, if you're that kind of person. But signal is what you want. And then once you find the signal, that's when you can kind of understand what's happening, where things are going. That's when you can suggest to your clients which styles, which types of material, for example, like denim you mentioned before the show, they should explore. And that's how you optimize the whole process, right? That's correct. And, and I think, you know, as you were talking about data science, I mean, that's where data science really comes to play, right? I mean, you know, humans have a difficult time sometimes to really go through the noise and find where those signals are. And so we use data science to really use the machine to its best advantage to detect those signals, which may not be clearly obvious to the human. Um, but, you know, the human still has a really big part in this too, right? Those subject matter experts, they're also looking and reading a lot about what's happening in the industry, and they have a better idea of getting intuition and getting the big picture of what's happening. And so, you know, I, I always like to try to dispel this myth of man versus machine. But, and here it's human and machine, right? Because I think the two working together will deliver the best results. So we can have data science do what it does best, but we also have the subject matter experts in the industry work with the machine to augment those insights so that we can tell a better story um, for our clients. Yeah, that's other, That's just fantastic advice too and perspective because you're right. It's and I, you know, I frankly lament how the narrative gets shaped in mass media because to your point, how often it's like, oh, well, AI is going to take jobs away. No, AI is not going to take jobs away. It's going to change the jobs that we have. And what was, there was some great line that someone used that said, AI won't replace any jobs, but uh, people who use AI will probably replace people who don't use AI. So you need to, to use the latest tools. But I think you're exactly right about the human side of things, because we want the machines to till the earth, basically, to use that sort of agricultural analogy, till the earth, get it ready to, to plant things. And then you use all the data to understand what's growing, what's not growing, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of science in that space these days, but even like you say in retail and fashion, just knowing which materials, which vendors, which, uh, you know, what's, what's happy, what's exciting, what do people want these days, all that comes together. But then people are a huge part of that equation. No machine's ever going to tell you just exactly what to do all through your processes. You have to stitch all that together and that's the human side, right, Ryan? Exactly right. But also to train a good machine learning model, it depends on good data, right? And where does that data come from? Well, at the end of the day, it probably comes from a human, you know, who tagged different images with certain labels, et cetera. And so, as I mentioned to you, you know, we, we've been tracking catwalk shows for over a decade, and we have a team of people who've been tagging those with very specific details about what those models are wearing. Well, that's a huge data set that we can then use to train the models to do that more effectively. But again, a machine's only as good as the data you put into it, right? It's never perfect. And so I think when you bring that human element in, 
not only do you tell a better story, but you can also create that feedback loop where you can then improve the overall model, right, by making it better over time. So we, that's why I think the two really go in tandem. I don't see the machine ever fully replaced in the human. If anything, you know, the human's always there. And I, I fully agree. Those individuals who, you know, maybe their job changes, all they do is move on to something else or even better in a way where they can use their expertise better. Yeah, that's exactly right. And help the company grow, right? Because the human is going to be in the loop and the humans will learn from the data. And one of my theories, I'll be curious to hear what you think about this, and then we'll bring in Hyun to comment on it, uh, Hyun Park from Amalgam. But I believe that what you really want to do with these data science applications and programs is use that information to fine tune your own instincts. Because there is another, I would call it false debate of, oh, do you trust the data or do you trust your instincts? It's not either or. You're going to have your instincts about things, but you need to be honest with yourself about the data, pay close attention to it, and allow that to fine-tune your instincts. Because usually if your instinct is telling you something, there's a reason for that. And that reason is usually pretty deep and complex, but it's palpable because you sense it and you, you feel something. Now, you know, don't drive off a cliff if your instinct tells you to, but nonetheless, you, you do want to honor and trust the human de- decisions and determinations that we make, so long as we're balancing that with data and with insights. But what do you think, Ryan? 100% agree. Um, you know, in a past life, I, I worked for a, a CEO who was a little bit, you know, wasn't really bought in with data and science. And so he was like, well, I follow my gut, right? And, you know, we came back and said, well, we're not here to replace your gut. We're here to give you a data-informed gut. And I think that's a clear distinction in the sense that I think we're trying to bring in the data to help inform that instinct, right? Because that instinct is right. And sometimes we don't necessarily know why we feel like this is a certain, the right path, right? But obviously, you know, our brains are very complex and bringing and stitching all this information together. And so there is a place for that instinct. And I think all we're trying to do is provide some data to help show that that instinct has got some backing, right? Ideally with data to tell us the right, the right direction to go in the future. Yeah, that's awesome. We'll stick around for the roundtable. Um, Ryan, let's bring in Hyun Park from Amalgam Insights. And uh, I think you're like me, Hyun, you hear someone like Ryan talking about what they do, and it just gets you excited. Right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, there's so many things that we could talk about just based on that. Um, but, uh, you know, let me do kind of a, a last in first out, uh, you know, just, just thinking about how we are using uh, data and how we uh, input data, you know, it, it's definitely not enough to just uh, have uh, people using uh, people involved in the data, but people involved in training the model uh, and having making sure that the model matches the way that we think about things. You know, there's a lot of complexity there for people to get involved in uh, artificial intelligence, the analytics, uh, the algorithms, uh, however you think about that. And, you know, that's going to be a massive job. Frankly, uh, you know, the decision-making process associated with what we do is so much more than simply uh, putting in some data and expecting one specific output. We right. make a lot of judgments uh, in, in what we do, frankly. And a lot of that is based on uh, simply going back to the fact that, you know, these brains that we have, um, they have been reinforced by millions of years of uh, activity that got us here. You know, all of our ancestors making the decisions that kept them alive and led to us and then reinforced by a lifetime of experience. And it's impossible to sh- get all of that put into the data that you're putting into an, an algorithm to make a decision. So you're always going to need some human input to uh, get into this. Um, another thing I was thinking about, Eric, is uh, just uh, when you introduced this show, talking about nuggets. And I loved how you brought up how that the big money came from industrial mining, not not the panhandlers. Mm-hmm. But it, it shows how nuggets are kind of the uh, guiding, uh, kind of this initial starting point. Like if you find the nuggets, you know, there's them gold in their hills, you know, right. as they used to say. <laughs> but, you know, that's how you know, oh, I found one uh, starting point. And now I know where to put my industrial uh, machines. Uh, right. I'm reminded of uh, when I used to do fantasy baseball uh, uh, for money. Um, you know, one of the things I used to do was uh, I would look for these uh, leading indicators. You know, these these nuggets 
that would show where I should go for next year. So, you know, like we all do, uh, you know, when I looked at my league, I would first look at every category. I would figure out the variance within each category, then go uh, look at the top 300 players and then do a regression of the last three years of their performance to figure out the variance of all of their stats uh, within each category. And then uh, look for the little things that show, you know, shined, you know, the little nuggets and the, the things that really stood out, uh, the things that looked really weird. And, you know, that would be my starting point for being able to figure out what I would do for the next year. Um, you know, it starts with one or two little nuggets that you find that lead to finding that whole universe of uh, possibilities and uh, opportunities. Yeah, what a great way to describe it, too. You just reminded me of how crystals are made or also how raindrops form, right? When they seed the clouds, you probably heard about those folks when they seed clouds, what they do is they put these teeny tiny little particles up into the air because then the moisture will, will kind of grab onto those particles and then form around it. And that's kind of what the high end is talking about here. When you find some nugget, it's just, it's, it's an analytic that you encounter. It's an insight that you, that you ascertain by looking at the data and that gets you started. Now that starts a whole thread. And Ryan was talking about that with the signal. That is the signal. When you find the signal, like, aha, here's a radio station that I like. Let's, let's you know, put it on auto program number one. I'll listen to it again. It gets you started. It gets the ball rolling so that then the brain forms new ideas around it. How can I make a process out of this? How can I automate it? All that stuff follows when you find the signal, right, Han? Exactly. That's that starting point. And I think that's uh, that's increasingly difficult to find, though, uh, because now we're still looking for these uh, starting points. But you know, data is getting bigger and bigger. Uh, we have more different types of data that we're looking at. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, every audio file, every picture, every video is, is now data. Now that used to be just the crap that you dumped into your archives and uh, maybe you know looked at once or twice over uh, you know a decade before you you threw it out. Uh, now we actually look for indicators in all of that stuff. And, you know, now we have, you know, definitely easily a hundred times the amount of data that uh, we had a decade ago <laughs> to, to look for the same nuggets of information that we've always been looking for. Yeah, no, that's a good point too. And you, you do have to know roughly where you want to go with something, right? I mean, you can keep an open mind about stuff, but you should have a purpose of what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, we'll talk about this throughout the show, I'm sure. Forever align your activities with business outcomes. What is the business outcome we want to achieve? And be specific with yourself. Is it to increase the top line? If you're like me, you always want to know, let's get more business, let's get more people coming in. But then you got the whole operations side of things. We're getting much better about being able to understand the costs of things. And you see it in the language. That's what I kind of excites me is ML ops, data ops, marketing ops. That's the operations. That's the actual workflow. What people are sitting down and doing, they're using new machines. They're using new processes, new data. They're building these data pipelines, for example, in real time to sense what's happening and then build out some protocol or some way to respond to all that. Just amazing things are happening now, but nuggets are the key. They get you started, just like Han said. We'll be right back. Don't touch that dial. You are listening to DM Radio. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to DM Radio. Your host here, Eric Cavanaugh. We're talking today with Ryan Keene of WGSN, Hand Park of Amalgam Insights. And next up, Eve Mulkers from 7W Data. So I'll bring Eve's in. Uh, you heard us talking with the first couple of guests about some of the trend lines uh, and signals, signal versus noise. I mean, it, like these are the fundamental tenets of what we're doing is we're looking for the signal. And it's exciting when you find the signal that, that gets analysts fired up, right, Eve? Exactly. I think uh, signals, but not only signals. It's it's about patterns and and you you call them uh, nuggets. Uh, it's it's looking at your data, augmenting it with with not only your internal data but ex- external data, and getting that that complete view of 
of your business and the ecosystem of your business. And if you can see what is happening in there, that, that can mean the, the competitive advantage you're getting by using the analytics. Um, the signals is, is something that helps you drive uh, and respond to uh, whatever is happening in your business and optimize it on that. Otherwise, you're just repeating whatever uh, has been done last year. Typically, if you look at your balance sheet, uh, your accountant tells you, okay, you, you made an increasement, uh, 5% more revenue, 10% more revenue. Maybe uh, he's able to uh, to uh, predict you, uh, however, your margin has changed or whatever. But if you can respond to these small signals, that's that's what is helping you with uh, with, with doing analytics in, in that respect. Uh, we, we talked about as well, uh, trusting your gut feeling. And I've been wondering, being so long in, in this analytical field and always thinking with my head and wondering why some other people were pretty successful only trusting on their gut feeling, it came clear in, in talking to uh, various coaches that that these people are thinking with their reptile brain. And, and Hyun uh, brought that up as, as well before. There is something that that reptile brain that helps you think faster, and that's the the few million years of experience that humankind has in their body and helps you in a kind of way acting and responding faster than you can do with with your just thinking with your brain, which is not responding that fast. And I think that's a good good balance where we need to look into. We as people use the machines to help us in uh, in in analyzing our data and supporting us in our decision system. So in that respect, it's it's like we say, the machines won't replace the people, but it will be uh, a very good combination, an ecosystem where we help each other in, in, in augmenting that. We see that happening as well, not only in, in where we typically use analytics in reporting parts, but as well in doing the data management where uh, we, 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 it's been set just before where we set uh, AI systems, they need uh, good data to build uh, good systems and, and good models and uh, make good predictions. And that's where we see that the machine is helping again and the algorithms is are helping uh, in optimizing all the data that we are feeding into these systems. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, it is a virtuous circle and it's important to... I mean, for example, in the opening segment, Ryan was talking about how with the catwalks, they have people who are going in and tagging manually a lot of these different types of dresses and different types of clothing and so forth. That all gets baked into a model that helps them predict what's coming down the pike, right? But there is this sort of dance between the people, the technologies, and the data, and you want that to be as fluid as possible, right? I think that's one of the keys is you want that to be a very seamless experience. You don't want to, it to be truncated or chopped up or uh, separated by large pieces of time. That, that was the old um, hindrance of the ways of doing things 10 years ago, even today, quite frankly, is if you have to go to IT to ask them to do something that's going to take two, three, four weeks to get done, just so you can get a new view of your data, you know, you're probably going to forget what you were thinking about two to four weeks ago by the time it comes around. So you have to work out all of those, those gaps, I suppose. And I think we're getting a lot closer because A, the technology is getting better. B, the data is everywhere. But C, I think also there's a maturation about the processes of standing up these kinds of solutions to the point where, and in Ryan's case, they're a B2B play. So they've got a platform that people subscribe to and they can log in and do whatever they want. And I just love that. I mean, I think that's a fantastic business model. I think we're going to see a lot more of that going forward because again, to do it all yourself is pretty intense. I mean, it takes a lot of effort and the, you know, the skills gap is brutal. I was talking to someone just the other day saying, man, trying to hire people. This guy had two data engineers stolen from underneath him in the last couple of months. You know, So the, uh, the need is out there, but you have to make it simple, right, Eve? Exactly. The, the simple part, uh, being, being, being in the process, having done data integration, uh, matching all the data together manually, all myself, time and time again. What we see now with the low code and no code and automation tools, which are out there that help us uh, aggregate and integrate data in, in, in a much easier and faster way, that is, that is very more helpful. And that's exactly the knowledge of what we've built as, 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 a, as a human and have been seen being put into systems that helps you automate that. 
where you can now use that that intelligence to operate the systems and, and see what is going wrong and where you can improve, but focusing more on the business aspect than purely on the technical aspect of, of integrating and, and massaging the data to prepare that. So initially, where, where you said, okay, we start with a logical model and we look at the business part of it and see what we need and then trace back to the sources and look at uh, the type of data, what you need. This is now all supported by algorithms and automation systems and at the much more scalable uh, size, uh, thanks to to cloud and and more uh, elastic computing. What what you have in this space? So that's that's right. what I see happening now uh, right away. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point too. Just the elasticity of the compute and the storage and so forth. That's a big deal. The cost of storage dropping through the floor. That's a big deal because now you can store lots of data much less expensively. I mean, I think the frustrating part is there are so many moving parts that you, you're never going to get a static view of the world anymore. Everything is always in motion. And so you just got to get your sea legs, figure out what makes sense for you. And, you know, maybe plan, I don't know, quarterly or probably not monthly. That's probably too short a time span. But we do have to change our, our way of planning and interacting with the data and interacting with our teams and our technologies, right? It's the whole world moves a lot faster these days, right, Eve? Yeah, and that's that's where we see typically we we have the batch processes, and now we're focusing more and more on, on on real time aspects because the ingestion part for the data has become much more easier. All the systems are foreseen to ingest that data in a continuous way, so that allows you to have the the latest data in such a way. But it it forces you, if you look in a, from an architecture perspective, to build your systems in a different way. Always think in, in, with in mind as well, flexibility. If you have a database and tomorrow you will have a new type of database that will support you or will give more functionality in a certain aspect, you need to be able to have that replaced in an easier way. The cloud is a kind of, of, of way of doing that, but we see that more and more happening in, in, in uh, on-premise systems as well. So that's, mm. that's a new way of architecturing your systems and the advantage of, of going to platforms is that these people think about that and, and prepare that for you as a business. So you don't have to think about that, which type of licenses will I have to buy and will I have a, right. a lock-in for the next four years for this type of vendor, for example. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Let's bring Ryan Keen back into the conversation as well. You know, Ryan, the more I think about your offering and how you folks have approached this I think it's it's just a fantastic way of cracking the nut because again, we want to get to the nuggets. We want to get to the meat inside that nut. We don't want to be messing around with all the chattel, if you will, or the uh, the chaff when separate the wheat from the chaff, but you're also very focused, right? Cause the, there's so, I mean, it's, we have this embarrassment of riches these days in terms of data types, data amounts, where we get data from, what we can do with it. But because you have such a tight focus, you can really provide ongoing value to your clients and you make it easy for them. Just log in, see what the research is, grab some analytics, go and make a decision. I, I think that's a, it's even more sophisticated than the model I was originally thinking about 20 odd years ago or 15 years ago, I guess. And it's very cool because again, it's, it's a B2B and it's, it's a platform where people log in. And I'm sure you guys probably monitor a lot of who uses what and, and all that kind of stuff. Can you tell us about some of the inner workings of the system? Yeah, yeah. But one one thing to build off of what we were just discussing here, going back to your nugget analogy, which came to mind is when you think of the value of a nugget, right? Well, what makes it even more value? It's when you turn, you know, refine that gold nugget into something like a gold ring or jewelry, right? So part of, I think, this analogy with data is, as I said, kind of getting rid of the chaffs and other things to it is just as important as finding the nugget in itself. And so I think how we use and take that data to turn it into something that knowing what the needs of those clients are, we can then make it more attuned to what we know they will find even more valuable than the raw gold itself, which is its finished product. And so I think that's a critical part of insight, right, which is just taking and communicating that in a way that makes it much more valuable. Um, going building off to your question, though, in regards to internal, absolutely, we we get and track a lot of data around how our clients use our platform, but we know something about them too, what industries they're part of, what roles they play in those companies. And so, again, that's where we can use machine learning because, you know, we may think sometimes what articles may be relevant for that individual, but the best way also is to build some recommendation engine to basically take in how they're browsing so that observed behavior and also other people like them 
and then even recommend content to them that may be relevant for them. And maybe in something they may not even thought of themselves, right? Mm. We're basically connecting the dots for them based on their behavior. And so absolutely, as part of our platform, that's another side of my team, which is trying to figure out how we can better serve that content to them. That's fantastic. And, you know, I'll bring him in to, to comment on that. You know, one of the cooler things I'm seeing now is that you get a lot of folks who've been working at YouTube and Google and Facebook and some of these really, really big data-driven companies, and they're leaving and going out and starting their own businesses. Well, we saw a wave like that in the aughts, in the in the 2000s. You saw a lot of folks leaving Yahoo and yeah. some of the early companies, and they just all, I mean, it was amazing. They just went out and like launched 50 other companies with a lot of BC money. But what's cool is that at that coal face, as my British partner would refer to it sometimes, you will learn really interesting things about distributed systems, about how they operate, what they do, and to step out and then go into the real world and share that with other people, then they can kind of catch up. Because you know, if you think about the edge that an Amazon has over a mom and pop retailer, it's just mind blowing. So how do you tackle that? Well, you, you, know, if you can't beat them, join them. That's one way to do it. Or learn from the people who were there and you know, find new ways to do things. It's so exciting how how many new ways there are to get stuff done in this world. But Hian, what do you think about that? Yeah, and nowadays, you know, the, the new generation is coming out of Uber and Netflix and you know, DoorDash and you know all, all these uh, companies that have been providing these real time services and delivery, and now they are opening up all of their secrets to the rest of the world. Uh, one of the most interesting trends I think is happening is around uh, decision intelligence, where we're getting to this point where you ask your data uh, questions uh, using natural language, you get back some sort of contextualized answer because the application knows a little something about what kind of questions you ask, who you are, um, what kind of uh, issues you've had in the past, and um, being able to get directly to that uh, level of insight uh, from uh, as a line of business user, um, you know, as a former IT guy and a former database administrator, you know, I, I, I'm naturally disposed to keep the data to myself and keep the process <laughs> to myself and then uh, be that's the funny. gatekeeper. Uh, but I realize that's not how the world works anymore. <laughs> right. So um, it's, uh, you know, as a human being, it's better to see that as someone who cared about my job security and maybe. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because uh, you probably know Donald Farmer, a good friend of mine in the industry, incredibly smart guy. He spent years at Microsoft and then he was at, couple other places um, for a while, click, I think for a while, but he made this really, really good point that uh, IT needs to, to shift their role from gatekeeper to shopkeeper. And his point is that to your point earlier, gatekeeper, that's exactly what you were in part because you knew you had to manage this huge IT stack that's hard to do. And, uh, you know, operations people, they don't like stuff to change. They don't like curveballs. They sure don't want to do the upgrade if they don't have to, because it's just going to cause you other problems that you cannot foresee. Right. But now that whole world has changed. And just real quick, I'll throw it back to you Hyun, to comment on that. He said, change to shopkeepers, because now you just have to have having to help people find out where stuff is. Say, oh, you want to do this? We're using Airflow to, to do that. Oh, you want to do this? That's where our data catalog comes into place. That's like the new job. Real quick, what do you think? Yeah, yeah I, I think that a shopkeeper analogy is a really good one. Uh, and I think that, you know, I joked about the job security thing, but the uh, honest truth is it's about being able to provide uh, the right toolkits and to be able to make sure that people are able to uh, quickly access new data sources that they're going to have trouble finding on their own, or they may not understand the governance issues associated with that. Uh, it's about being able to provide that guidance going forward. And there's plenty of work there as well. Right. You know, the work has changed. It, has, it hasn't really gone away. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that is exactly correct. I mean, honest to goodness, if you, you know, you could have a full-time job just staying on top of what Amazon rolls out or what Azure rolls out or GCP and to track all three, now you absolutely have a full-time job, like 24 hours a day, just about, because that's how fast things are changing. That's how fast new products are getting rolled out. Well, folks, don't touch that dial. You're listening to the longest running show in the world about data. It is called DM Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to DM Radio. First show of 2022. So excited. Big shout out to our new listeners out there in Boston and uh, Philadelphia and New York. Hope you're enjoying the show. Send me an email if you want to be on the show, info at dmradio.biz. And I'll throw it back over to Ryan Keene, uh, our data science expert on the show today, practitioner. You know, the team is such a big part. You made a couple comments about different people on your team. Can you offer some advice for organizations about you know how to weigh these things out? How many data engineers do you need? Front-end developers, statisticians, analysts, all that stuff. Any Any advice you can offer on kind of how to build a team and what to look for? Yeah, I think the best teams are the diverse teams where each individual brings their talent. And then obviously a well-working team is when each person brings their strengths together to achieve an overall objective or end. And so when thinking about developing out a data science team, of course, you need data scientists, right, who are going to go really deep into the models themselves in terms of training. But I think oftentimes it's always good to partner them with a data engineer because when we think about where we get the data, how we clean the data, we have to get it ready for the model. And so I think generally having a data engineer tied up right against a data scientist is very optimal, you know, on that team. But in addition to that, you also have analysts, right, who are going to take the output of the models themselves and who want to understand and interpret it in a way that they can then communicate it to different stakeholders of the business at large. And so, you know, I think of data scientists is very deep, but um, data analysts are more breadth, right? And I think it's good to, to have both to, to, to work together. Um, one thing also, too, in terms of developing a good process and team is I, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer in having people who are focused on research. And then those who are focused on operations, because those mm. are in the research, you know, we obviously have deadlines and, you know, we have to achieve different goals, but I want to give those individuals more space to basically just go and test out different things, right? Different theories and, and not feel like each one has to work. And so oftentimes you want to have those people dedicated because sometimes that's like going back to the point of finding those signals or those nuggets that's oftentimes by chance or through those sort of exercises where you find right. some really interesting insights. And so you have to make sure that someone's dedicated to doing that. And then when you find it, then you have a team that then executes it. How do we then embed it and productionalize it into the underlying model itself? And so I think it's important to make sure you allocate the team's time. It's having those experts, but also to, you know, separating those two different tasks so they can work very well in tandem together. That's a great point. That's great advice. And Ken, I'll throw it over to you and then we'll bring Eve back into the conversation in terms of team building and working with your team. You know, there, there is this, uh, this fundamental aspect of Western culture that I've, I grew up with where you can't fail. No one's going to fail. Failure is not an option. We're going to succeed, but you have to let people try stuff and not everything is going to work. So that whole fail fast forward became a big thing in the last few years. And I think that's really important because you have to, number one, you have to spend quality time with the data, with the technology, whatever you're using to kind of get somewhere. But then you also have to be prepared to realize, okay, that was an empty hole. That was a rabbit hole. Let's move on to the next one. It's hard to say what that timeline looks like. You know, is, you don't want to waste weeks, but days, you know, or hours are okay to try something and then realize it's not going to work and just go try something else. Right, Hyun? Well, Yes, uh, absolutely. I think it's important to be able to fail fast, but it's also be able to important to fix fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you fail, uh, can you revert back to where you were before? Um, can you make sure that you cleaned up uh, the mess that you made when you broke <laughs> stuff? Uh, that's important as well. And and I think it. Uh, I'm not saying don't fail. I'm I'm just saying. Um, you know, make sure that you have your sandboxes, make sure that you have your uh, backups, make sure that you can revert to your original state at the end of the day if you need to, so that you have the flexibility to be able to fail. Because, yeah, honestly, not everything's going to work. Sometimes you're going to have to go back to your old process uh, mm-hmm. at the end of the day because uh, your new process has something wrong that happens. Uh, we, we've seen, uh, you know, headlines all the time from large companies uh, that are trying something in machine learning, for instance, and they find out that their model is flawed in some ways. So they have to go back like uh, uh, Microsoft uh, had a bot out there, you know, that that was reading Twitter and learning how to use language. And it ended up becoming a very racist bot. And I saw to take that. It offline, Tay, right. Right. Uh, Tay. You know, <laughs> yeah. Tay, poor Tay. Uh, learn the wrong thing, but, uh, you know, you'll have mistakes like that happen. And yeah, you, you just got to get that out of production sometimes. And it is what it is. <laughs> right. 
No, no. I talk about the perfect example of of uh, deploying an AI solution a bit too early in the game. Teo was a disaster. <laughs> I was watching that. I thought it was kind of funny. But you're right. And you do have to be able to have the stopgap, right? The manual override and just be practical about things. I'll throw it over to, to Eve to comment on. You know, again, a lot of work goes into just getting up to the point where you can do the analysis, get the nuggets, make some decisions about your business. So you do have to have a sort of long view on things as someone who's running the team. What's some advice you have about you know, how to keep the team energized, how to keep people's morale high, that kind of thing? Eve? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's it's important to have a very uh, diverse team as well from from different backgrounds because you di- bring different uh, experiences uh, to the table. Some people people come really from a technical background who are the, the tech experts. Some other people come more from a business perspective and they, they are tech savvy and 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 that balance is is very important. I see as well which works uh, very good is is younger people which don't know the old way of working and and older people w- which have a, a lot of experience. On, on doing things in, in a more controlled way, in an architectured way. And, and that's, that's a good team. But as well, uh, communicating, uh, showing respect to each other. So really personal values is, is very important in, in building those teams. We talked about uh, fail fast and, and, and being able to revert back as well. That's, that's best practices, what you put in place purely from an IT perspective, where you are sure that you have a backup, that you can easily... Uh, spin up a new server, have everything installed and don't need to do it like in the old days where you have to install Windows and install the server and it takes you another three weeks. Whereas now you have the, the capabilities of, of really scripting that out and say, okay, I want to spin up a new server. Bam, in, in the next 30 minutes, you have that. That's that's one of the advantages that, that cloud is offering. So if you have all these kind of things, you can fail fast and you can experiment a lot in this respect. Uh, I'm coming from a chemical background, so that's that's the empirical way where you not only try once, but you do three or four experiments. And I was kind of in the beginning when I stepped into IT, it was kind of eye opener where I said, I always test, I always try out and always verify what I've been testing. So and and, and that's that's well over the last 20 years, it's, it has improved a lot, luckily. And, and that's what we see uh, happening these days. So um Getting that that spirit into the team from different perspectives that's that's very important and not only staying in into your IT box. I think the shop owner or the the shop facilitator what we brought in is is very important as well and leaving room for the team for for experimenting. I know that Google tried it a, a, a very long time where people were allowed to to experiment for about twenty percent of their time. But it, that gives you energy to see, hey, it's not always about delivery and, and really bringing value. I am allowed to play, but with a mindset that you, well, are looking for something to improve, but not necessarily need to show value right away. Like if you're doing a sprint, these are the number of, of, of sprint points that we did in the last two weeks, whatever, bringing value that you can release the people a bit out of that. And I see that is that is going wrong in a lot of companies where there's so much pressure on the people that the innovation part is, is going back because you have to fix, you have to do this, you have to do that and, and really struggle just to, to keep on top of things, uh, what you're doing right now. Mm. Yeah. The tyranny of urgency. That's something a good buddy of mine threw out there a comment one day is like, you don't want to be in that situation where you're constantly reacting to your environment, putting out fires, you know, code red is, is what someone described to me the other day. But I think that was a brilliant plan by Google. And it speaks to, again, trying to keep morale high and trying to help people feel like they're productive, but they're not trapped in, you know, in a rat race, basically. No one wants to feel like that. And in this industry, there, there's so much effort that has to go into it. So I think it, it pays. And I guess we've got about a minute left here for our, our live show. Ryan, I'll throw it over to you. Any final thoughts on how to keep the team motivated, energized, any tricks of the trade that you've used over the years? Yeah, I think one one key trick I always like to do is retrospection too, right? It's it's also making sure they have the the time to do that 20%, like we said with the Google, to test and learn. But even on their tasks themselves, making sure we build out time at the end of the week that they can really dive in and say what worked, what didn't work. And so that's something on my team that we do where we document that out, right? And as a team, we figure that out in terms of, 
just putting it on paper, but then we save that, right? And so over time, we can see how that progresses because we can go back to it and say, did we actually go back and fix what we said didn't work this time so that we can continually improve each other? So I think making sure that's valued and building out the time on the team is critical for that and that retrospection period. Yeah, that's great. I mean, document your successes. We heard that from, uh, I saw it actually on Twitter from Leah Jarrett from Looker. She gave that advice to, to young people. Document your successes. When things work, write it down. Keep a Google Doc or whatever tool you use to remember when it worked. And of course, when it didn't work, podcast bonus segment is coming up next. Email me, info at radio.biz. We'll talk to you next time. All right, folks, time for the podcast bonus segment here on DM Radio, talking to Ryan Keene of WGSN, Pian Park of Amalgam Insights, and Eve Mulkers of 7W Data. And uh, let's talk about hiring and retaining, right? You want to retain people. It's very disruptive when a key person leaves, and uh, then you have to hire someone, fit them in with the team, get that chemistry right. I'll throw it over to, to Ryan first. Any thoughts you have on hiring the right people? And then what do you do to retain them to, beyond just money? Because there's not you know, an infinite supply of money. So how do you help keep people around? Ryan, what do you think? Yeah, I think in, especially in this field, it's very difficult because there's such a high demand for data scientists and analysts. And, and it's obviously the ball's in their court in terms of choosing who and where they want to work. And so I think that one thing we look for in our, in our hiring process is where people are passionate about what we're working on. And so I find that some of the people on my team that I've hired in, they came to me because they knew WGSN. They knew what we were trying to achieve. They knew that we were trying to transform the fashion industry and embedding data into it. And they were just really passionate about that, uh, uh, that subject. And so I find that even if they don't necessarily even have always the full like, list of skills, that passion, you can't replace. And so I think getting somebody who's really excited about our mission and what we want to do will always put someone high up on my list to find and build into the team. I love it. Yeah, I think that's excellent. I mean, passion is enthusiasm. It's, you know, it, it boosts morale. It's good for all kinds of different reasons. Kian Park from Amalgam, I'll throw it over to you. Any thoughts on hiring the right people and then retaining the right people? Yeah, I feel like uh, over time, uh, I've seen two big mistakes in the hiring process. Uh, one is around uh, overly emphasizing uh, formal education. Like I've got an MBA. I went to, uh, you know, top tier school, but, um, you know, over time, I found, you know, it matters far less whether you went to Harvard or Stanford and much more about the actual skill set if you have and you've developed, especially, you know, once you get past your mid-20s. Like, you know, after 25, frankly, all that educational stuff is meaningless because you now have a track record <laughs> of what you've actually done in your life. Right. Um, you know, I've hired high school grads who dropped out after one year of college who have been better than PhDs, uh, frankly, at, you know, for data jobs. Uh, and then the other step uh, side that I see uh, issue with is the rounds of interviews. Like when I start hearing up people who have five, six rounds of interviews, it's like, what are, the heck are you interviewing for? Do you even know what you're looking for if you have right. to interview that many times? <laughs> that's right. I think that's crazy. I mean, I know because I have friends who are developers and a good buddy of mine, when he was uh, going to start his new gig, he's like, this is going to be six months and it's going to be brutal. <laughs> I was like, Wow. That sounds crazy. And I watched it happen. Like some of these places interview 10, 12, 13 times. Mm -hmm. To me, that's ridiculous. I mean, I, you know, but I don't know, like maybe it works for them. At the end of the day, you have to see what works for you. But to me, if you can't figure out in a couple phone calls and looking into someone's background, if that's going to work, because you can't find the perfect person. I mean, that's one of the real challenges I see is that you have this, uh, this segmented process and it's, we kind of talked about this with respect to the systems. I'll throw it over to Eve to comment on here to, to close this out today. But you have the segmented process where you have all of these recruiters now who are rewarded based upon whether or not someone actually gets the job, they get their cut when that happens. But a lot of times these recruiters know precious little about the jobs that they're, they're hiring for. And you're scratching your head thinking, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense that <laughs> you would have someone who doesn't even know what this job is about is now the gatekeeper on whether or not you get past the next stage of this of this process. And it's the the, the overfitting of the model is what I would call it, where you in like three, four years ago, we'd see we want a data scientist with 10 years of experience in this field. Whatever and you're like, guys, the term just came out like a year and a half ago. No one has 10 years experience as a data scientist. 
So at a certain point, I understand you want to get the right person. You don't want to have to wade through hundreds and thousands of job applicants to get to where you want to go. But at the same time, you can't over-specify and be too prescriptive about things. You got to keep an open mind. But Eve, what are your thoughts on finding the right people and then retaining the right people? Yeah, it's been mentioned before. Uh, passion is, is is very important. And I, I speak for myself as well. I, I've stepped into IT, never had a formal education about that, but I felt this is missing. So I went looking for business analyst courses. I went to look uh, on business process modeling. So I, I learned all the stuff that I felt was missing to improve my communication, to improve whatever I was trying to deliver. So that's, that's, that's something very important. And I think as well, the, the cultural match do you fit within the company? Do you fit within your team? And that's that's very often, if, if you look at, at at a CV, the first thing you get is send me your CV. They do uh, they scrape all the words in there and try to match on, on, on the type of exact wordings, but not really on, on your capabilities. Uh, I only had, I think, in my career two times that they asked for a job interview. What, what do you want to achieve? And not what do you know from the past? And I've, right. I've, I've, I've saw... A, a very nice introduction on, on LinkedIn from, from a lady, I forgot her name, but she, she said, I'm hiring people on what they want to achieve, where do you want to go, not the specifically on, on where they're coming from and what they've been proven. Okay, if you said I've built this type of system, it's a kind of insurance what you have as well. But I think uh, in the end as well to retain the people is, is if you fit within the company and you've been challenged on the right ways and you see that you've been taking serious on your input you're bringing into that, I think that's that's very important to uh, to keep people on board and find out as well what drives you. It's not the, only about the, the paycheck and at the end of the month, but sometimes it's about the flexibility. It's uh, it's about working in the projects you like, and these type of things are very often not not taken into account. They say, okay, it's it's not a good fit. Is not doing it, or she is not doing her job uh, pretty pretty good. But why is that? Because maybe you're not really interested into the task that, that you have been assigned to, uh, upon to. So really the HR, the, the human resource part has to be improved and not only uh, only stick to the, the, the part of the financials on the contracts and everything on that, but really managing the human capital. And that's something where I see that that in the future, Definitely with, with the scarcity on these type of jobs that, that uh, the HR department needs to focus upon. Yeah, I think HR does need to, uh, to really pivot and, and change direction. Going by CVs in and of itself uh, is a bit uh, arcane, I suppose. There's a company, iSIMS, I-C-I-M-S. I had Steve Lucas, who was formerly of SAP. He's now the CEO over there. And they do hiring at scale for companies like Target, for example. And they came up with the simplest idea, which is just brilliant. They do a two-minute video call, basically, or they just tell the, the person applying for the job, flip on your camera and tell us in two minutes who you are and what you want to talk about. Watch it. I was like, that is freaking brilliant. Now you can see the person, you can hear them talk, you can hear the tone of their voice, the enthusiasm. You can't capture that stuff. In words, you can try, but it's a very difficult thing to do. And I'm passionate about retail. Okay, that's great. You know, but if you see it and if you see that I love doing this stuff, it's like, oh, that's the guy we want. Look, he loves that stuff. So things are changing. Everything is changing. That's all good news, folks. Big thanks to all of our guests today. Look these guys up online. Ryan Keane from WGSN, Keon Park from Amalgam Insights, and Eve Mulkers of 7W Data. We'll talk to you next time, folks. You've been listening to DM Radio.